thought someone might come back for the helicopter. It's a good thing you came back for it. I was going to take it. It looked pretty cool. Let's bow once more as we prepare to enter God's word. Father, we thank you that we have your word as the final authority for all of life, and that by your word, we have the power through your spirit to not only expose the lies of Satan, but that by it we have the power to demolish those strongholds that, that he establishes through his lies by twisting or denying your word. But thank you, Lord, that we who have faith in you and your word have been given this great weapon, the sword of your word, the sword of the spirit, that we can have clarity in our lives to not fall for deception, but to instead be able to discern it, to expose it, and to live by the truth. And so I pray, Lord, that as we study your word this morning, that that would be the end result, that we would leave here this morning a little bit more equipped and prepared to expose the deceptions of the enemy, to know how to identify them, to not fall for them, and to walk in the truth. And so I pray, speak through me, your servant. May the words be yours, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now this morning, I'd like to begin with a little story. I've got some slides to go along with it here. And the story begins with a hunter, a bear hunter, if you will. I know one who's uh, in our church who can actually call himself a bear hunter. He's, uh, he's sitting up near the front. I don't, I'm not sure if your bear was uh, quite that big, but well, <laughs> the perspective is a little small, I know. He's probably way smaller. So anyways, this hunter is out hunting bears, and uh, it's winter's coming, and so he plans to turn the bear's fur into a warm fur coat. And so he goes out hunting, and after a while, he sees a bear coming towards him. He raises his gun, he turns to pull the trigger, and suddenly the bear shouts out, Wait! Why do you want to shoot me? And the man is startled that this bear can speak, but he replies, Because I'm cold and I want to turn you into a fur coat. But I'm hungry, replied the bear. That isn't fair either, so maybe we can reach an agreement. Well, the hunter thought this was a fair point, and so they sat down to negotiate a compromise. In the end, the hunter was well covered by the bear's fur, and the bear had eaten his dinner. In case you didn't figure that one out, just think about it for a second. Now you see, it's the same when we try to negotiate with the enemy especially our enemy of our souls, who is none other than the devil and Satan. You see, when we try to compromise or negotiate with him, he will always consume us in the end. And if there is one thing that is harming the church in Canada, the church in the West, more than anything else, it is doing exactly that. Negotiating and compromising with the systems that Satan has set up in this world, systems that are against God, deliberately designed to deceive, to keep people from entering into a soul-saving, life-changing relationship with their creator. And so what we as a church are doing is we are negotiating and compromising with the enemy by engaging with his culture in a manner where we say that the secular beliefs and the culture, we just need to negotiate to find some sort of a compromise. And yet, because they are set up by the enemy, we are actually compromising with him 
And his end aim, remember, is to consume and devour us. Now, I want to just clarify one point here, however, that compromise by itself as a word or a concept is not always a bad thing, depending on context, especially within relationships, the marriage relationship, for example. There, compromise is not only necessary, but it is required to have a healthy relationship. You know, sometimes, husbands, you need to take your wife out for sushi instead of steak, you know, Or if you're really smart, you'll find a place that serves both. But then you might wonder on the quality. But nonetheless. Or or wives, sometimes you need to let your husbands go bear hunting and and just hope that he's a little smarter than the guy in the story, right? Eric made it back, so you're you're all good. Perfect. It's on the wall. I've seen it. It's beautiful for a rug on the wall. Now, compromise in, in those contexts is fine and healthy. You need to find common ground. But when it comes to the enemy, one that is intent on devouring us, compromise is always dangerous and often deadly. As 1 Peter 5 verse 8 reminds us, Be alert and sober, for your enemy, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And so as Christians, the question is this, how can we guard ourselves? How can we guard our families, those we love, from being devoured by this enemy. There are a few points that I'd like to bring out for your consideration this morning to this end. How do we guard ourselves from being devoured by the enemy? Number one, we must always remember that our, that our enemy is cunning and deceptive. Now, our enemy's end goal may be to devour us, but he will not usually come with that approach right out of the gate. He will use cunning and deception to make us think he's actually on our side and not such a bad guy after all. Well, in Joshua chapter 9, our text for this morning, we see an example of this play out with one of Israel's Canaanite enemies, the Gibeonites. And if you have your Bibles, please turn there with me to Joshua chapter 9. Now there, verses 1 and 2 begin our narrative, telling us that most of the Canaanite kings of the city-states west of the Jordan River, they've of course heard about the, the stunning defeat of Jericho, the following defeat at Ai, and now they are banding together, forming a military alliance in order to wage war against Israel. Then in verse 3 we read, However, when the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they resorted to a ruse. They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with well-worn-out sacks and old wineskins, cracked and mended. They put worn and patched sandals on their feet and wore old clothing. All the bread of their food supply was dry and moldy. And then they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and the Israelites, We have come from a distant country. Make a treaty with us. Now clearly, just for sake of reference point... The inhabitants of the city of Gibeon were located only six and a half miles west of Ai. So we're talking a day's travel, like by foot, six and a half miles away. So they know on the conquest map, they're almost next. They're one of the very next cities that Joshua and Israel would be attacking and eradicating, wiping them off the map, just as they had done Jericho and Ai. However, in considering their options, they don't believe that they can win militarily, even by joining the alliance with the other kings. And so, 
the leaders in Gibeon decide to instead use subterfuge to deceive Joshua into making a peace treaty with them, thereby ensuring their survival. Now, we can be quite sure at this point that Joshua would have known something about the other kings of Canaan uniting together to fight against him. In fact, in chapter 7, he even says to the Lord, this is one of his concerns. And so with this thought in mind, it's quite, quite sure, even though the scripture doesn't explicitly say that Joshua would have had his scouts out in the countryside watching, and his sentries would have been on high alert for any sign of a counterattack from this enemy. But while Joshua, as a good commander, was undoubtedly preparing for a a physical attack, a direct confrontation with the enemy, he was not, however, prepared for the Gibeonites' deception. In much the same way, Christians are often defeated not by the direct attack, not by the attack that's so obvious and in our face, it's often the subtle, indirect, deceitful attack that defeats the Christian. One stark example of this from history took place in the German church of the 1930s and came to a head in 1934. Now, in this next slide, you may recognize the figure, if I can get it to go there. If not, Luke, if you could advance that, thank you. Now, you may recognize the guy on the the left-hand side shaking hands, one of the most notorious figures of history, Adolf Hitler. The man less known on his right shaking his hand is none other than the bishop of the Catholic Church in Germany. The picture was taken in the year 1934. For in that year, Hitler wanted to create a national church consolidated under his personal authority with he at at the head of the church. However, to do so, he needed to get more than 30 bishops within the church to agree to come under his authority. And so most of the bishops, of the 30-some bishops, quickly agreed. They saw this as a path to to appeasing their their new leader who was rising in popularity. And so they almost all agreed. However, there were two holdouts. Two very popular and influential bishops named Verm and Miser. They were dead set against it. And for good reason, for these two bishops argued powerfully that the only head of the church could be Christ himself, and they could not confess allegiance to a political leader. And so Hitler, of course, didn't like this. He had them removed as bishops and then began an active campaign to turn the people's opinions against Verm and Miser, calling them traitors to the people, enemies of the fatherland, and the destroyers of Germany. But the more he slandered their good names, the more the plan backfired. You see, the more he had them persecuted, the more popular the two bishops became with the people. And quickly, the people began to rally against them as Verm and Miser became more bold in speaking out against Hitler and the Nazis. Now, when Hitler heard that the people were actually galvanizing around their message and rallying around them, Turning against the Nazis and Hitler, he realized he had a problem on his hands. And so Hitler cunningly reversed his tactics. Rather than persecuting them any further, he restored Vermin Miser to their official positions as bishops. He then said some nice and conciliatory things about them and ordered all of his henchmen to leave them alone. 
Well, this satisfied the people, and for bishops, Verm and Miser, content to have their positions restored, they did not speak out against Hitler or the Nazis again from that point forward. Their newfound silence allowed Hitler's plan to consolidate the German church under his authority proceed virtually unopposed. You see, when Hitler couldn't win by a direct attack, he won by means of deception and lies. And one need not wonder where Hitler learned this tactic from. In John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus described Satan like this. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Then 1 Corinthians eleven thirteen to 15 says this of those who learn from his ways. For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising, then, if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. Hitler was a master of this. He could say all of the right things to the church leaders. He painted himself as a good Christian. He could quote scripture. All of these things that made them say, yes, we will come under your authority. And we know, history tells us all too well what their end was. And it's often the same for us spiritually. Though some fall for direct attacks on their faith, yes, it does happen, it happens much more often as the result of one of the devil's cunning deceptions, coupled with a lack of spiritual discernment on the person's part to identify the deception before it's too late. Right at the very beginning of our whole history of mankind, we have the perfect example in the Garden of Eden. I don't think we need to get into the details of that story, how Satan used deception to set up the entire human race for a great fall. And so we must always remember that our enemy is cunning and deceptive. He will often use the aggressive attack to disguise the greater deception that is happening out of view. And so while he can use frontal attacks, he will just as often use deception to get around our defenses. And so we must always remember this is one of his primary attacks against us and remain vigilant to watch for them. And this leads us into our second point. We must keep the enemy from taking up residence in our lives and in our homes. Ephesians 4.27 says, Do not give the devil a foothold. Do not give the devil a foothold. Now, most of us in this next picture will identify what is happening here. Has anyone ever heard the saying, just get your foot in the door? And if you want to go to that next slide, Luke, we can see uh, just exactly that. Do you know where that comes from? Has, has anyone here ever had to go knocking door to door before? Like making cold calls, like trying, yeah, trying to sign someone up for something or sell something to them? You know that getting your foot in the door is a very important step in making a sale or, or getting the people to donate to the cause that you are trying to raise for. Now, psychologists have actually studied this, and of course, there's always a bottom line here because they study it for the intent of figuring out human behavior so that they can be more effective in their sales tactics. And they've noticed 
that there's a certain human behavior that makes it much easier for people to make a series of small commitments rather than one large commitment. Now, in the wonderful world of car sales, and I'm mindful we have some former car salesmen here, so I'll try to be as gentle as possible. (laughs) From that wonderful world of car salesmanship, this poses a big challenge because, as the salesmen know, one of the biggest financial commitments most people will ever make is to buy a car, you know, second to a house or a large property. And so this is a, a big decision, one that you've got to live with probably for a number of years when you buy this vehicle. And so one sales tactic that is often employed is to get the potential buyer, rather than saying, hey, will you sign on the dotted line right out of the gate, they will make a sales pitch in such a way to get the potential buyer to make a series of smaller commitments to grease the skids for the big commitment at the end. And so salesmen will rarely start by talking about the price first. First, they will point out all of the great features in the car. Then they will ask for the first small commitment. And it's so small you won't even notice it. Do you want to take a seat inside? you want to sit down? Oh, sure, why not? I'll sit down. I want to see what's inside the car. First step, you sit down. Second commitment, hey, would you like to take it for a test drive? Well, why not? I need to see how it's going to drive, right? This this makes perfect sense. It's why you're here. Then only once you've completed the test drive, made some small talk about the features and how it's driving and it handles nice, you then make the third small commitment by stepping into his office. Hey, why don't you come on in and we'll talk finances? The next commitment will be something like cash or financing. And once you tell him, you're off in the dance. And this goes on eventually until after making so many small commitments, one after the other, none of them final, it comes to that big moment. Yes or no, are you going to buy this vehicle? And finally, once it's all said and done, you drive away the proud owner of a new vehicle, quite possibly one that was just a touch more expensive than you were planning on when you showed up that day especially if the salesman is good at his job. Now, the enemy, most of you know what I'm talking about. You've been through this dance before in one way or another. Well, the devil is also an expert in human nature. And like any psychologist, in fact, better than most, he's been around for thousands of years, he knows human nature down to a science. And he specializes at getting his foot in the door of our lives with the smallest of things. And he knows that once we make that first commitment, it seems so small, so just trivial, that once we've made the first one, it's easier to make the second one, and finally down the line comes the big one. And this is why, again, the Bible warns us, do not give the devil a foothold. You see, the foothold almost always starts small, more of a toehold, really. But once it's established, he's going to keep coming back, And he's going to come back again to view his property. And then he's going to expand the borders a little bit more and a little bit more until what once was a toehold becomes a stronghold. And left unchecked, it's going to become a stranglehold. And if you don't discern somewhere along the line what's happening and then kick him out by the authority of Christ in your life, before long the devil will go from ringing your doorbell to having his feet up on your couch. But now listen, while you can't stop the devil from ringing your doorbell, you can keep him from taking up residence in your life and in your home. 
As someone once said, the only sure defense is this. When Satan comes knocking, send Jesus to answer the door. For as John wrote, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Jesus is the only sure defense against Satan when he comes knocking. If we try to match wits with him, we won't stand a chance. Only the Lord Jesus in our lives has the wisdom, the authority, the power to send him packing. And so when Satan comes knocking, send Jesus to answer the door. And we're going to get into what that looks like in our next point. And our third point is this. We need much more than human discernment. We need spiritual discernment. Back to our text. The Gibeonites have put Joshua and his leader's discernment to the test with their deception. And so here, let's run through their deception to look at some of the particulars. We see them, they show up, they they look the part. That's the first thing. And we have to give them a lot of credit, begrudging credit, if you will, for the complexity and the execution of their deception. Number one, they did their homework. Later on in Joshua 9.24, we read that the Gibeonites had been told by someone about God's command to wipe out all of the inhabitants of the land of Canaan. And so it's likely that the Gibeonites had also learned that Israel was allowed to make a peace treaty with nations who were a long way off. Now, we can read about the details of that in Deuteronomy chapter 20. And there we read that nations that are a long way off who are willing to play ball, so to speak, could become the Israelites' servants. And so wherever they, they gain this knowledge from, they decide to use it to their advantage. And so armed with that knowledge, they make their plan. No detail is overlooked. From their old wineskins, worn-out sacks filled with stale and moldy bread, to their old clothing and worn-out sandals, they're the perfect picture of a weary and foot-sore people coming from a distant journey and a distant land. So no detail is overlooked. They did their homework. Secondly, they said all the right things. All these guys were good salesmen. They had smooth tongues. Verses 9 to 10. Your servants have come from a very distant country because of the fame of the Lord your God. Just imagine, they're they're laying it on thick. For we have heard reports of him, all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth. And just, they're laying it on thick here. They're buttering them up with, with lines like this. Your servants. We're humble before you. We're your servants. Then they slip in the lie right after the humility. We have come from a distant country. Now distant meant six and a half miles away, remember, right? We have come from a distant country. Then they use more flattery. And the reason is because we have heard of the fame of the Lord your God. And finally, they then imply that they want to follow the God of Israel by saying, we have heard reports of him and all that he did in Egypt. Notice that they were also very clever to not mention Israel's recent victories against Jericho and Ai. Why? Because that would have given them away. If they had known about the recent victories, it would have shown that they had not come from a great distance as they had claimed. These guys thought through all of the angles. They said all the right things. And finally comes the moment for the big commitment. Could they seal the deal? Verse 12. 
This bread of ours was warm when we packed it at home on the day we left to come to you. But now see how dry and moldy it is. They present their evidence. Look. And so verse 14, now Joshua makes, he's made a series of very small commitments to listen to them. He's asked them some questions. But now verse 14 says, the men of Israel sampled their provisions. This was the test drive, if you will. They sampled their provisions. Oh, yeah, it is moldy and stale. This had to have been made months ago. And all the way through this exchange, we see Joshua exercising human discernment. And Joshua wasn't a dummy. He wasn't some guy who was just born yesterday who was just easily deceived. You see him asking questions throughout this exchange, much like a customs officer. He's he's questioning them. He's cross-examining their story. And finally, he inspects their food to see if their story and everything matches up. And guess what? It does. Their story made sense. The evidence matched. And Joshua buys it. He signs on the dotted line. But there's just one problem, one very important problem. In the second half of verse 14, the men of Israel sampled their provisions, but they did not inquire of the Lord. This is the key line in this entire story in chapter 9. But they did not inquire of the Lord. And what's the result? Then Joshua made a peace treaty with them to let them live, and the leaders assembled, ratified it by an oath. An oath, a covenant, was something that was taken very seriously. There would have been ceremony involved in it, something that invoked the name of the Lord. An oath, a covenant that could not be broken. Now, you may remember from last week's sermon that when Joshua first sent men to attack the city of Ai, his mistake then was he did not seek the Lord's direction before that battle. And so he says, we'll only send 3,000 men to attack it. Of course, there was Achan's sin. They were defeated. The second time around, he learned from that mistake, and he sought the Lord's battle plan before attacking Ai a second time. But as we learned last week, those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And here we see that because the enemy switched up their tactics, Joshua let his guard down. And he again repeated the same mistake as before of not seeking the Lord in prayer before making his decision. My friends, there is simply no substitute for an active and persistent prayer life. To discern what is happening in the world around us, to discern decisions coming for us, we must always pray, even if humanly speaking, it appears to make sense. In the next slide, you can see there's no substitute for this posture, to be on our knees in prayer before the Lord. Now, in 1 John chapter, pardon me, in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 1, we are instructed with this. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. So here we are told, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Now here the context is John is warning against false prophets who are deceiving Christians with a false gospel. This Gnostic gospel claimed that Jesus had not truly come in human physical form, but was instead some sort of spiritual emanation from the Father. Now, 
that probably sounds crazy to you and to me. Well, how was Jesus not an actual flesh and blood human? Like, the evidence is, is so astounding and overwhelming that he was, and yet it sounds absurd to us, but the people in the first century, they believed in this sort of thing, and many of them were being deceived by this Gnostic gospel. Many of them were being led astray by it. And so John says to these early Christians, test the spirits. In other words, he's saying exercise spiritual discernment towards anyone or anything that could potentially lead us away from the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't just believe every teaching you hear simply because the person sounds Christian and maybe quotes a few Bible verses. Remember that the devil is an expert at quoting scripture, but always out of context and always with a twist. So if something new comes along that you're just not sure about, first, always first, pray about it. Pray about it. Then study the scripture for yourself and finally seek other mature believers' counsel about it. And this is how we exercise spiritual discernment to keep from being deceived by the enemy. This is how we send Jesus to answer the doorbell when Satan comes calling. Pray, study scripture, seek counsel of other mature believers. And now finally, we, ha- we have to face the dire consequences of compromising with the enemy. Joshua failed to do these three things. He failed to exercise spiritual discernment. He falls for the deception and unwittingly makes a peace treaty with the Gibeonites. The remaining verses from 16 to 27 go on to tell us how just three days later, the Israelites inevitably discover that they've been duped. And the long and the short of it is that they made the covenant, they swore the oath before God, and a covenant made was a covenant to be kept, even if they were deceived into making it. And so Joshua kept the covenant. Though he still made the Gibeonites their servants, they were spared and eventually integrated into the nation of Israel. But the consequences of what God had forewarned the people of still happened. Way back in Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verses 2 to 4, God had warned them with these instructions explicitly. When the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. Do not make a treaty with them. Do not intermarry with them. And this is exactly what happened. The next generation of Israelites began intermarrying with the Gibeonites and other Canaanites as well, and soon they began worshipping their idols. And Judges chapter 1 tells us that immediately following the death of Joshua, the very next generation grew up that did not know the Lord. My friends, though God is slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, Israel's compromise with the Gibeonites led to his anger, which led to his discipline, which led to them being defeated, militarily taken into captivity, not once, but twice. The consequences were far-reaching for this, what seemed to be a small compromise. And so today within Christianity, ongoing compromise with the world is leading so many, so many into a lukewarm 
self-centered, and powerless form of Christianity. A different gospel is being preached where it's not all about Christ, it's all about you. It's all fluff and no substance. And more tragic still is it's causing so many to lose faith and reject Christ and the gospel altogether. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, the Apostle Paul prophesied about this exact age that we are living in when he wrote, The Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. And today, even well-known Christian leaders and pastors are not immune to this. And it seems that we keep hearing more and more of Christian leaders, well-known pastors, who are falling away from the faith. You've probably heard in the news recently that now former pastor Joshua Harris, who is best known for his 1997 best-selling book entitled I Kissed Dating Goodbye. In that book, he challenged the concept of recreational dating. He elevated the sanctity of marriage promoting relational purity and saving sex for marriage. And in recent years, in order, Harris has recently first come out rejecting the teaching of his own book. He's since divorced his wife, and recently he announced that he has rejected his faith entirely. And in his announcement on the social media, he wrote this. The information that was left out of our announcement is that I have undergone a massive shift in regards to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away. By all measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. Now how does this happen? I've wondered this. I don't have all the answers. But I, I just wonder, how does this happen? How does a pastor who has led so many people to faith in Christ fall away? And I don't know Joshua Harris personally or the details of his life, but one thing I do know for certain is this. At some point, somewhere along the way, he let the devil get a foothold. He believed some sort of a lie, probably a small one. He was deceived He compromised, and finally, the Savior that he once preached to others, pointing them to Christ, he has now rejected. And of course, we can and should, and I do pray for him. I pray for his return to the Lord. But my friends, it's tragic and it's serious. And I would like more than anything to be able to end this sermon on a positive note. But I want you to sense the gravity, the seriousness of the battle that we are in. The enemy of our souls is not just playing games. And he doesn't play fair. The enemy of our souls is playing for keeps. He wants our souls to be damned to hell forever. He wants us to go to the lake of fire that was made for him and his demons. And he's trying to take us with him. He's playing for keeps. And both the immediate and the eternal consequences of falling for his deception is very real. It's not a small thing, my friends. And though it may appear to us that Clarny, Canada is this sleepy little place with no enemies in sight, nothing to be worried about here, we must remember that even here in Clarny, Manitoba, Canada, a sleepy little farming town, even here our enemy is active. He is cunning and he is deceptive. 
And so we must keep the enemy from taking up residence in our lives and homes. Do not give him a foothold. And thirdly, we need to use more than our human discernment. We must exercise spiritual discernment by seeking the Lord diligently in prayer, seeking his word, being in fellowship with other believers, to not fall for his deceptions, but to instead identify them before it's too late. Tell him, get behind me, Satan. You have no place in my life. You have no place in my home. You have no place in my family. And by the power of Jesus Christ, our Savior, by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, come what may, we will have the victory in Christ Jesus today and for eternity. And may all of our family, may all of our children that God has entrusted us be found faith, faithful, secure in Christ on that day. That is my prayer. I hope it is yours as well. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, in this battle that we are engaged in, help us to see our part. Help us to see that the enemy is not so far away, but that he is active, he is here in Killarney, he is here testing us at every turn. He would love nothing more than to destroy each one of us, destroy this church and its witness. But Lord Jesus, you are greater, you are stronger, and by the power of your Holy Spirit dwelling within us, when we look to you through prayer, when we study your word and hold fast to it, when we come together as believers, you have promised us that not only will we endure the attacks of the enemy, not only will we survive, but that in the end you have promised that you will crush Satan underneath our feet. We look forward to that day when the enemy is defeated once and for all. We thank you that even now we have the promise that he is a defeated foe on borrowed time. And so help us to see that we are not on the ropes. He is. We are marching forward with you to victory. So help us to hold fast to you, to your word in these times. And Lord, for all those who have been deceived, we pray that you would open their eyes. For Joshua Harris and the many other pastors who have fallen away from the faith, Lord Jesus, show yourself to them in a way that they would realize the error of their ways before it is too late and to turn back to you just as the prodigal returned home for in you they will find an embrace. And so, Father, we pray for this. For any who have been deceived and fallen away, we pray, Lord Jesus, show them your truth, your beauty, and may they come home. And for each one of us, Lord, hold us fast, hold us secure, that in these times of testing we will not fall away, but that with you we will be found in the end. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.